today with Dominique Mamet. She's a conference interpreter at NATO. Welcome, Dominique. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. The pleasure's mine. I feel as if your career path is quite a mysterious one, so I'm looking forward to having you answer a few questions that I am personally curious about, if you don't mind. Of course. So let's kick it off with, if you could just tell us a little bit about interpreting as a career. Um, and the reason that I mentioned it was mysterious is, let me give an example. When you and I first met, I called you a translator, and that was a big faux pas. So can you just give us some of the basics about interpreting? Sure. Actually, it wasn't a big faux pas because it happens all the time. And it's actually pretty natural, I think, um, not to know what the distinction is between a translator and an interpreter. And I think there is some confusion even in the terminology. The main differences between translation and interpretation is that translation is the written word and interpretation is oral. So a translator will have a written text in a source language that he will have to translate in writing into another language. And when we're working as interpreters, we're really only working with um, the spoken word. And I would also say that when we interpret, also when we met, I don't know if you remember this, but I told you that it would be okay for me to interpret from another room, that I didn't have to be necessarily in the room with you, but what was absolute, absolutely essential was for me to be able to see your faces and ideally your entire bodies because we also work with body language. Because what we're doing actually is we're not, this is another part of the confusion I think, that people tend to think, oh, interpretation, it's about languages. Oh, I'm good in languages. I'm good at languages. I speak several, two, three, four languages. Maybe I can become an interpreter. And of course, there's a language aspect because you have to be able to understand the source language and you have to be able to render it into another language. So that's, I would say, a, prere a prerequisite to become an interpreter. Interpreting is more about analysis than anything else. If I had to pick one thing that interpreters were good at, I would say analysis. So you have to have an analytical mind, I would say, to become an interpreter. And so people make sort of that mistake, if, it, if you can call it that, because they tend to think, oh, interpreting is all about languages. But it's about all kinds of other things. It's about analyzing the message. It's about um, having all kinds of knowledge about all kinds of different fields that you're not necessarily an expert in, but you're actually working for people who are experts in their field. And so you have to have enough knowledge to understand the message. And it's all about communicating. And so we use all the cues that we can to get the message across, including body language. And that's also what makes it sort of interesting is that we have the whole, we get the whole package. And that's why we're always present. And that's why we always have to have access visually to the people who are speaking. And um, there's a huge difference, of course, between speaking a language and being able to interpret even from. Um, we have what we call passive languages and active languages. And so passive language would be a language that you would interpret from. And an active language would be a language, typically your mother tongue, that you would be interpreting into. Um, so that's a distinction as well. Are emotions also high sometimes in international relations? Have you ever interpreted a particularly passionate speech? I have. I've interpreted all kinds of passionate speeches. Some I can tell you about and some I can't. <laughs> <laughs> because some were public and some weren't. Um, yes. And 
that's part of what makes this um, this profession so wonderful is that when you're interpreting somebody, particularly when somebody is passionate about something, and you can be passionate about all kinds of things. You can be passionate about something that's very technical that nobody knows anything about except yourself and be very passionate about, or you can be passionate about the big political issues that a lot of people are passionate about. Um, and so what happens with somebody, somebody who's passionate is that it makes our work easier, actually, because we really have to... We really have to put ourselves in the briefer's um, shoes to really get the message across. Because as you said, there are all kinds of components. There's the core message that you're getting across, so the information that you're getting across, and then there's everything around it. So all the emotions and um, is, this people, is this person annoyed about this? Does this person agree with this? And you get to know also when you when you work for the same people over and over again, you get to know their positions. And that also makes it easier. Um, all those little things make our jobs easier. When we know what we're going to talk about, when we know everybody's position, if you know people's political parties, if you're working in a political setting, because I worked on Parliament Hill in Canada, in Ottawa, and so you know basically the party lines. And... There tend to be very few surprises. Sometimes there are surprises, <laughs> but they're few and far between, I would say. If you've done your research and you've done your homework and you know who's from what political party, you have a good idea of what's going to be coming out of their, of their mouths. I don't know. I would say that translation, people know more about translation than they do about interpreting. I mean, there are far fewer mm -hmm. interpreters also in the world. Our, our professional association, which is called Laïque, okay. um, has about 3,000 members, I think. So it's a really small community, and that's why people don't know much about it. Uh -huh. It's a small, small community. If you want to become an interpreter, it's a wonderful profession, of course, but um, there are not that many spots out there, right? Are there particular institutions that really are the best employers for interpreters? For example, we're here at NATO. Um, is the UN, you know, famous for employing a large team? Yeah. Yeah, the the sort of the international organizations that we know, some of which you've cited. So there's NATO, of course, and then there's the UN. Brussels is a good spot to be, of course, because there's the European Union as well. Um, and there are other international organi organizations elsewhere in the world. And then Canada, of course, for the bilingual market. Now, it depends, of course, on your la your language, what we call your language combination. Mm -hmm. So what your mother tongue is, and that would be we have we code our languages. And so I talked about passive languages and active languages. Your active language would typically be your mother tongue, and that would be your what we call your A language. And so you'd be working into your A language. And then you're working from passive languages, which are either B languages or C languages. And C languages you only work from, never into. But a B language you would work into. It wouldn't be as strong as your A language, as your mother tongue, but you are capable of working into your B language as well. So okay, so kind of both ways. You yeah, mean you both. would be, and it's called the retour. Um, so it depends on your language combination. Obviously, on Parliament Hill in Ottawa, we have two languages, English and French. It's the same languages that we have here in um, at NATO. And that's why I was able to actually come and work here. So it really depends on your language uh, combination. And we're, we're all of us here at NATO are bi-active. So we work in both directions. We work into English and into French. Um, we do that on Parliament Hill as well. And then typically at the EU, you would have one A language, so one language that you work into. And then I think three at this point, I think you have to have three 
sea languages. So it's three languages that you you can work from. Wow. And then into your into your A. Unless you have a B, which typically would be English, but Generally speaking, that's the way it works. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. It does? Okay, it's, because I to think, me it makes sense because this is the way we work, but I don't yeah. know if that is explained properly. Yeah, and if there's any look of confusion on my face, I think it's just that this is blowing my mind. I never Because imagined. it's new to you. Yeah, mm-hmm. precisely, precisely. And I think until you're in this career, there's not much um, guidance in terms of, I mean, for students of international relations prior to pursuing maybe more seriously a master's in interpretation or a master's in translation, um, there's not much information out there on how to pursue a career in this field. That's right. And it's actually interesting that you say that because we may have to do something about that. (laughs) Um, Because we do want to encourage people (laughs) to become interpreters and people who have what it takes. That's the sort of person that we're looking for. So maybe that's a wake-up call for us. As I said, we have our professional association. um, And they have a website, of course, with all kinds of useful information about training, about the different job markets, about the difference between being uh, a freelance interpreter and working for an international organization um, as a staffer, for example. So that's also a choice that interpreters make. And some interpreters want to be freelancers and want to remain freelancers. And some carry out their entire career as freelancers. So there's that as well. So there's a lot of information on that professional site. And that's really recognized. And the organization has been around for some 60 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are, lo- there are schools, of course. There are different schools. But I think it is hard probably to find the school that you should go to. And again, it depends on where you are, of course, and then what your language combination is. Um, There are some schools that are quite well known in Paris. The one in Ottawa is very good. (laughs) It's a plug for (laughs) the (laughs) Ottawa school. So there is a master's program at the University of Ottawa. And then there's some uh, schools that are quite well known in Paris. There's Les Ites and Les Ites that people have heard about typically because They've been around for a long time. And, and then there's some schools in, elsewhere, of course, in Italy and in, in, um, in Great Britain. And I think more and more schools are starting to offer um, sort of interpreting diplomas. So they're not master's degrees. And I, I think you have to be a little bit careful when you do your research and you decide on the school that you want to go to to make sure that it is a serious school. Mm-hmm. Great advice. I want to encourage women in diplomacy listeners to tune in to our Women of NATO series, particularly our interview with the French ambassador. Dominique was interpreter for the interview with the French ambassador. And when we were discussing planning this interview, that was my first time working with an interpreter. Very exciting. You taught me a lot of different terms, such as consecutive interpreting and simultaneous interpreting. Can you give us a few of those basics? Sure. So um, simultaneous interpreting is basically what we do here at NATO. I would say that 95% of the time we're doing simultaneous interpreting. And simultaneous interpreting has been around since 1945. It started on a large scale at the Nuremberg trials. That's when it all got started. And that's when they actually decided to um, develop the equipment so it could work. So simultaneous interpreting does require equipment. Typically, we're in a booth, and as I said, with a nice big window, so we can see all the speakers in the room, and I explained why that's so important before. And we have headphones, 
And so we get the source language in our headsets and we speak into a mic. So that's sort of the typical setup. And then there's also what I used for the interview. I don't know if you remember, but um, it's a portable device that allows us to work in simultaneous mode, but without a booth. And that's for really exceptional circumstances because it it is not as um, it's not as good for us as a booth is with the proper wiring because we really need to hear appropriately. Now that's another thing that's important that people tend not to understand just because there's no reason for them to think about it. Um, is that the sound quality that we get in our ear has to be top top notch top notch because we're speaking at the same time. So we're speaking over the voice that we're hearing. So in a room, for example, participants could be completely fine with the sound that they're getting because they're just sitting there listening. They're not speaking at the same time. But we really need to get top quality sound in the booth because we're speaking over what we're hearing. And so that's a really important issue for us, sound quality. But anyhow, getting back to your question, so so that would be simultaneous interpretation. And what's so great about that is that it's in real time. And for the interview that you had with the French ambassador, I thought that because there was talk of doing it in consecutive, and I thought to myself that consecutive might not be quite in the spirit of the interview because when you're being interviewed, as you said, it's kind of like we're in our living room and you want it to flow and so simultaneous offers that. And I think I was actually happy when I stepped out because I thought to myself, I think, and you'll have to confirm, <laughs> don't burst my bubble now. <laughs> I think that you actually were able to carry out the interview as if it had happened in one language. Absolutely. And that's, yeah. we can't ask for anything more. Mm -hmm. That to us means that we did a good job. If we go unnoticed... The more we go unnoticed, the happier we are, because it means that we weren't really there and the people who were having the dialogue were able to carry on as if there was only one language that was spoken. And that's really what we're looking for. Precisely. And I want to say that I think that that is a priceless tool for diplomacy, because by the end of the interview, we had even formed a connection that felt as if we had had a conversation. And I think that that can be really key in international relations. That's wonderful. That's really what we want. It's really what we're looking for. And that to us is the key to the success of what we've done. So that's really, that's really great. And then there is another mode that's also simultaneous. It's also in real, in, uh, uh, real time, if you will. And it's called uh, elbow interpreting, or some people call it whispering, whereby you actually don't use any equipment and you sit by the person that you're working for and just whisper basically in their ear. So that's, an, that's another option. And then consecutive interpreting is um, when the interpreter doesn't use any specific equipment, just has a pad of paper and several pens. It's always a good idea to have several pens because your pens can always run out of ink. Um, and basically takes notes while the briefer is speaking and then gives the speech in the other language after the end of that specific intervention. Now it can be short or longer, it can't be too long. 
there was a time when apparently speeches could go on for an hour and interpreters were trained to take notes and to actually render the speech <laughs> afterwards. We, we practice makes perfect and we don't get very much practice doing consecutive and so it tends to be shorter and also I think I mentioned this when we met people I, I think have gotten used to simultaneous and tend to get impatient sometimes with consecutive that's my experience that's my experience I should really um, because I know a, inter, some other interpreters work in consecutive a lot and when their clients are used to that it works wonderfully so I guess it's also what your clients are used to and what they want and how rushed they are and how much time they they have because obviously consecutive takes more time and I think that at the Nuremberg trials that was the main concern that if they were to do it as they had done it traditionally in the past in consecutive it would mean extended trial hours and so that's why they decided to to switch to simultaneous and back then it was it was such a feat that people most of them I think who weren't trained that these people could actually <laughs> listen and talk at the same time and 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 that's just the beginning because in between listening and talking, you're analyzing. And that's what makes it so exhausting also is that you're listening and you're analyzing and you're understanding and then you're saying it in another language. How did you know that you wanted to work in this field? That's an interesting question. And actually, I think most interpreters do other things before they train to become interpreters. That's my case anyway. There are some, I have some very young colleagues um, and I, I'm personally very impressed with very young interpreters who can actually do this because I need all the help I can get in the sense that on top of the languages, of course, as I explained, you have to have a lot of baggage. You have to have a lot of baggage to be able to understand all these different speakers who are speaking about their field of expertise. And it can range from agriculture to defense, of course, here to health. And so you have, you're interpreting doctors and you're interpreting veterinarians, you're interpreting um, ministers of defense. And so you have to have enough knowledge to be able to understand the message, analyze it, and then render it into another language. And a lot of these meetings are high-level meetings. And so the stakes are high. And so for me, it was inconceivable to actually do a master's degree in interpreting right after my BA. So I actually worked. Um, I did a BA. I did an MA. And I worked. And then I decided that I was ready. It seemed... It, it, it's, it's a... It seemed, to me, it seemed elitist and it seemed like I might not be able to do it, actually. And that's also part of the reason I think that I postponed um, my studies in interpreting. Because I felt, I felt, as many people do, actually, before they actually know what it's all about, I felt that it was just impossible. That only a very, very few people could actually do this and you'd have to be a genius. A lot of people tend to think this way. It's funny how it actually, we, we have sort of two general reactions to what we do. And of course, there are all kinds of things in between. But this happens a lot. People <laughs> will come to see us after a conference or after a meeting and will talk to us like we're Einstein. Will <laughs> we'll say to us or will look at us like, these people are geniuses. How is this even possible? 
And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got people waltzing in going, I speak English, I speak French, I can do this. (laughs) So it's funny how we kind of get these two opposite reactions. And the truth, of course, is somewhere in between. The truth is it requires a lot of skills, language skills, but other things, analytical skills. And then you're trained. It's a profession that you train for. And that's important, I think, to remember as well, is that you train for it, like so many other things. And so it's difficult. It's difficult to actually get into the programs. Um, the criteria are really are really strict, and it's hard to get into the programs. And it's hard work. I have never worked so hard. I did my MA, and it was three semesters. And I have never worked so hard. It's very humbling. It's a very humbling profession. You're only as good as your next performance, as my one of my colleagues likes to say. And I think that's so true. Um, so it is, and you have to be humble also. As an interpreter, I think that's an important factor. But anyway, so it is is—it is a profession that you train for, and it is possible. You know, I'm proof that it's possible. And um, so, so I think that, that that's important, too, for people to realize that you you can't you train you train to become an interpreter and and you can also improve your skills the skills that are required before you actually do the training and then and then that gives you of course access to this wonderful profession what's your favorite part of your job that's a good question um i think i would have to say that i have interpreted we're kind of like a fly on the wall so and we have access to because we interpret so many different things we have access if you will if you know what i mean access to all kinds of different people a lot of them are experts um, in their field and it's what i love about it is that it's I'm, i'm thinking i'm trying to think back to when when is it that i go home and i think wow what a privilege to actually be able to do this. Um, and it's when I've interpreted people who are just really inspiring. And and because we do so many different things and we have we, we get to interpret all of these different people, there are a lot of people who have been inspiring for all kinds of different reasons. Um and also the the as I st- as I, I I stepped out of the interview that you know with the French ambassador the satisfaction of knowing that that in this case you and the ambassador were able to communicate although you don't speak the same language and that's really what it's all about can you walk us through your own career path a little bit of the studies you did and the jobs that you took yeah so i am um, my my mom is american and my dad is belgian so in terms of languages i was I was pretty much covered. <laughs> I grew up in Montreal. I was born and raised in Montreal. And I went to um, French school, so elementary and secondary school. And then, and, and French was basically the common language at home. It was the language that we spoke at home. My parents made a conscious decision. And it's funny because I now have children. And so I have to make that sort of a decision as well. Um, that sort of decision as well. Um, about what what languages we want to speak at home, what languages we want our children to speak. Of course, I want my children to be bilingual. Um, but we've also decided, as my parents did, that French would be their main 
language. And so my parents made a conscious decision, and so my American mother spoke French to us at home. Her French is actually great. Um, and so, but when it was time for me to go to university, I just I decided that I wanted to go to university in English. So I was still in Montreal at that point, but I had never really had any formal schooling in English. So the, the school that I went to was French, and it was French French from France. And so, in spite of the fact that we were in Montreal, the English that was taught there was not very advanced. And so I really had had no, very little formal um, training in English. And in spite of the fact that I'd always spoken English and that my mom was American and I, my, half my family lived in the States and I'd gone to the States many times, it was hard. It was hard at first for me to write all my papers in English and it, it really required sort of an extra, an extra effort. But it was a conscious decision. It was what I wanted to do. And it also allowed me, I'm lucky in the sense that and I thank my parents for this, that they just, getting back to their decision, conscious decision to speak French at, uh, at home and to make that our main language. And um, so I, I feel that for me, French and English have been very separated. They've been separated because my father is French speaking and my mother is English speaking. That was very clear to me growing up. And because there were things that we did in French and things that we did in English. So we went, we had a country place in Vermont that we went to on the weekends. And so I spent all my weekends in Vermont and I had all my English speaking friends there. And so in that context, I spoke English and only English. And then at school, I only spoke French. So to me, there's, there's sort of a line between the two, not only language wise, but what's really important for interpreting culturally speaking as well. And so I don't have much interference, and that's a problem with people growing up bilingual, is there is this problem. It's a problem if you want to become an interpreter. I'm not saying it's a problem, generally <laughs> speaking. But if you want to become an interpreter, you have to have that line, and you have to, you, you have to know what's French and know what's English. And I'm talking about my language combinations, of course. And that's a problem sometimes for people growing up bilingual is that they have interference in terms of vocabulary, syntax, and other things. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I find that that was really clear because of the way I grew up and because of the different stages in my life also. So it really started out completely in French, and then I went to university in English, and then I actually went to Italy for a year, so I went to university in Italian for a year. And... Um, and then I came back to Canada and I went back to university in, in French. So I studied, I, I, I graduated and I, I really, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I hadn't received much guidance. My parents are both scientists and they just assumed that I would be a scientist and I wasn't so sure that that's what I wanted to do. And I, I, I really, I, I didn't, I was young, I was 17. I, I started university when I was 17 and I, I, I just honestly didn't, didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I decided to do something that I was interested in. So I actually have a BA in sociology and I, so I did that for three years. And I did psychology, I did sociology, I did a bunch of, I took some, some scientific um, uh, courses as well, electives, and um, that sort of allowed me to do something that I really liked and to sort of figure out what I could do also. And at some point I realized that I, I, I didn't necessarily want to go on and do a PhD. 
I didn't necessarily want to do that to be able to teach. And so I thought, what can I do that would be a little bit more practical, maybe? And that's that's when I actually went um, back to university and, and did an MA in translation. So I did an MA in translation. And at that time, actually, I was in Montreal at the time. And at that time, the translation market wasn't so great. It really wasn't great. So it was It was difficult at the time. I remember being quite anxious about how I would make a living. Um, and I actually got a job before I finished my master's I actually got a job as a technical writer so in Montreal so it's it's not it wasn't translation but it was close enough and in Montreal there was a market for technical writing in English so and I worked for an IT company and that was great because so it, it was different but it was a great opportunity and it was it was IT and it was a bubble and things were very rosy and that went really well. And so I worked in, in the IT field as a technical writer. And then I'd found another job as, as a translator in the IT field still. It's called localization when you're actually translating um, uh, interfaces. So for software. And so I worked in the IT uh, sector for a while. And I still use the knowledge that I acquired at that time today. The more you know about all kinds of different fields, the more comfortable you'll feel in the booth when the time comes that some expert, some IT expert, is going to talk about the software that you actually interpreted the interface for 15 or 20 years prior. Um, so all of that knowledge, that's one of the things that's amazing, is that all of that knowledge that you've acquired throughout the years will help you in your job later on when you become, or if you decide to become an interpreter. So I, I worked um, as, a, as a technical writer, as a translator, and, um, and then it was sort of circumstance. My husband, um, who's French and Canadian now, got a job in Ottawa. And at the time, there was only one interpreting school in all of Canada, which is somewhat surprising, but that was the situation. It's more or less still the same, although things have changed a bit since then. And so he actually moved to Ottawa. And I was still in Montreal, and of course I was thinking, what will we do? Will we move to Ottawa? And I knew about this interpreting school, but I was still thinking back then, it'll never work. So it, it, it's just too difficult. Um, because the, the classes are, the class sizes are tiny. They're, they're about five or six or seven students. Huh. Um, and not all, all of them make it through to the end. It's difficult. It's really difficult. So, but, so that's how it kind of worked, worked out. And I, I decided I, sh I, I would be moving to Ottawa. And so, and so I looked, um, I looked for a job there and, and then I decided to apply and they said yes. And so that's how it all began. So I did my master's there at the University of Ottawa and never looked back. How was working on Parliament Hill in Ottawa? <laughs> it, was, it was great, actually. The, um, the setting, first of all, is beautiful. So it, it was a real privilege to go to work every day and work in this beautiful, beautiful setting. It does something for the spirit. It really does. Um, and um, it, it was great because it's so diversified. It's really diversified. So you're basically, you have, we have the House of Commons and we have the Senate and then we have all the different committees, the committees of the House of Commons and of the Senate and, of the Senate, and they basically cover everything, everything, you know, from defense to agriculture. Agriculture was my big thing. I did agriculture for many, many, many years. Um, and, um, and 
it's so it's very it's very diversified, and the the format sort of is they're typically two hour meetings, and you've got experts coming in to talk about one something that's oftentimes quite specific. It doesn't always have to be, I guess, but it's oftentimes quite quite specific, and so they're experts coming in from all over Canada to talk about this one specific thing. So they're the experts, and they will. They will speak for 10 minutes or 15 minutes or whatever it is. And then there's a, a question and answer period. And so you have, you, you, you're interpreting all of these, all of this expertise in all these different fields. And so there is never a boring day. You learn something every day and, and, and you have to do your research. Obviously you have to prepare for all of these committees and for all, all of these meetings. Um, so you're not surprised, which means that you're constantly learning and and as I said, you not all the time, but oftentimes these people are inspiring because they love what they do and they believe in what they do. And you have to sort of put yourself in their shoes and you become yourself passionate about what you're interpreting. In closing, what career advice do you have for young women who might want to follow in your footsteps? So to become an interpreter, is mm-hmm. that what you mean? Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a, a great question and I think that we sort of broached on some issues in our conversation today because I know that there's not all, it's it remains mysterious I guess is a way of putting it it does remain mysterious and it's got this aura <laughs> of I don't know exactly what that makes it mysterious and maybe there isn't enough information out there for young people wanting to become interpreters um, obviously when I started thinking about it the internet wasn't very widespread. I don't know if I should be saying this, but it's the <laughs> truth. Now, of course, you know, your first reflex is to go and, and, and search and do a search on, and Google it, do a search on, on the internet. Um, and there is information out there. And maybe, I mean, of course there is information. And now I think what's difficult is sort of sifting through the information, what's actually relevant and what's not. I mean, there's so much information out there. So I think that the AIC, it's A-I-I-C, is um, the uh, professional organization of, of conference interpreters. The AIC website is a really good um, starting point. Uh, and then, and, and there is information about the different schools. So the different um, schools, depending on your language combination, once again, depending on where you want to study. And also, I think, keeping in mind what I said previously about the fact that it's not just about languages. People tend to focus on that, tend to think, I do speak one, two, three, four languages, or I don't speak, and there, therefore I, it's impossible, I'll never become an interpreter. If languages can be acquired, as you know, you have to typically go abroad to do it, but it can be done. But it's not, people tend to focus on the linguistic aspect too much, I find, and not on all the rest, all the other skills that are necessary um, to become a good interpreter. And the whole bit about the analytical mind, um, also people who are curious about things, because we have to, we have to sort of be aware of all kinds of different things, and we're not. You, you, one can't be interested in everything, but somehow you have to be curious enough about things to be interested, at least a little bit about all kinds of different things. And for me, it was. It, I mean, it, I, it sort of happened more or less naturally. Um, more or less. I mean, at the beginning, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And then I did all kinds of different things that allowed me to become an interpreter. And so for me, that was 
that was the way things worked out and I, I don't regret anything. I don't think, I went back to school to do my MA in interpreting when I was 30 or 31, I think, 31. And I don't see for myself how I could have done it before. I don't think I would have, I, I wouldn't have had the, the, the wherewithal and the knowledge and, and the strength and the humility also, I think, to actually get through that program, <laughs> um, which is really, really tough. And then to become an interpreter, which, which is which is humbling also. So, so I think there are different ways to access the profession. Um, of course, finding out about it is the first step, and figuring out I think what you need personally to get there. If it means going abroad and living abroad, if you can do that, not everybody can do that, of course. Um, and um, and and I guess just knowing that it's doable, that people have done it before, before you, and that if you really put your mind to it, and get proper advice also, then then it is it is doable, and it's it's really, it is really a wonderful a wonderful profession because it offers it it offers never ending um, learning, and um, you can't ask for more. Really, you're never bored. You're never bored. And it's really, it's a pleasure to come to work every day, so. Mm -hmm.